Williams, if you'll come. Praise God. Everybody say, God bless Brother Tim Williams. Hasn't he been doing a wonderful job? I'd say Corbin is pretty blessed, having great, great, great grandkids. It's quite the family tree there. My mom just welcomed her newest great-grandchild into this world here recently. And she's older than you, so. That's, yeah, you did, I'll say. But congratulations. As we get closer to Easter, our lesson this week is on John 18. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 27. So you can follow along with me on the screen if you like. It says, starts out by saying, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook of Cedron, where was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. He was loaded. He was ready for battle. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto him, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he, if therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. That the saying might, that then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and the officers of, of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that, that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without, then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door and brought in Peter. Then said the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art thou also one of his, this man's disciples? He said, I'm not. And the servants and officers stood there, who made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret I have said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me, which I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answereth the high priest not. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest, and Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said, therefore, unto him, art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, said, 
Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again and immediately the cock crew. We all know that story fairly well. So the private ministry of our Lord with his disciples has now ended and the public drama of redemption is about to begin. Man will do his worst and God will do his best. Romans 5 and 20 says, But where sin aboundeth, grace, grace did much more abound. Perhaps the best way to see the truth in John 18, 1 through 7 and grasp the lessons that they convey is to pay attention to the symbolism that's involved. John's gospel is saturated with symbols, some more obvious than others, and these symbols convey some important spiritual truths. And there's five such symbols in this section. The first one is the garden, and that represents obedience. The Kidron Valley is located east of Jerusalem between the city wall and the Mount of Olives. And the Garden of Gethsemane is on the western slope of all of it. Anybody ever been to Jerusalem before or Israel? Oh, great. You probably saw it. I've only seen pictures. It'd be great to be there in person. And Jesus often went to this garden with his disciples, no doubt, to rest, meditate, and to pray. Jerusalem was filled with pilgrims attending the Passover. And Jesus would want to get away from the crowded city to a private place. He knew that Judas would come for him there. And he was ready. Human history began in a garden. And the first sin of man was committed in that garden. The first Adam disobeyed God and was cast out of the garden. But the last Adam, Jesus, was obedient as he went into the garden of Gethsemane. In a garden, the first Adam brought sin and death to mankind, but Jesus, by his obedience, brought righteousness and life to all who will trust him. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as it says in Philippians 2 and 8. History will one day end in another garden, the heavenly city that John describes in Revelation 21 and 22. In that garden, there will be no more death, no more curse, the river of water of life will flow ceaselessly, and the tree of life will produce bountiful fruit. And Eden was a garden of disobedience and sin. Gethsemane was the garden of obedience and submission. And heaven shall be the eternal garden of delight and satisfaction to the glory of God. The name Gethsemane means oil press. And even today, there are ancient olive trees in Gethsemane. You probably saw them when you were there. Now, they're more than likely not the ones that were there when Jesus was in attendance. And the olives you find there, they'd be picked and put into the press for their oil. And what a picture of suffering. Our Lord would go through the oil press and the wine press. And that was prophesied by Isaiah, as a matter of fact, and taste our judgment for us. The brook Kidron is also significant. The name means dusky, gloomy, referring to the dark waters that were often stained by blood from temple sacrifices. Our Lord and his disciples were about to go through some dark waters, and Jesus would experience the waves and billows of God's wrath. The Kidron also had very important historical significance, for King David crossed the Kidron when he was rejected by his nation and betrayed by his own son, Absalom. 
Jesus had been rejected by his people and at that very moment was being betrayed by one of his own disciples. It's interesting that David's treacherous counselor, Ahithophel, hanged himself. In 2 Samuel, you'll find that story. And David's treacherous son, Absalom, was caught in a tree and killed while hanging there. Judas, of course, went out and hanged himself after he found out what he did was wrong. Jesus fully knew what laid before him, yet he went to the garden in obedience to the Father's will. He left eight of the men near the entrance and took Peter, James, and John and went to another part of the garden to pray. And you will find that story in the other Gospels as well. His human soul longed for the kind of encouragement and companionship they could, they could give him at this critical hour. But alas, they went to sleep. It was easy for the men to boast about their devotion to Christ, but when the test came, they failed badly. And before we judge them too severely, we better examine our own hearts as well. Another symbol is the kiss, which means treachery. That's what Judas gave to the Lord when, when he wanted the people to know who he was. And Ju- Ju- Judas had lived with the Lord Jesus for probably three years, and he had listened to him teach. But in reality, he knew little about him. The traitor actually brought a company of temple guards armed with swords and clubs just to get one guy. And just think of the privileges Judas despised and the opportunities he wasted. The word band in John 18 and 3 could be translated as cohort. A Roman cohort was a tenth of a legion. And this would be 600 men. Now, it's not likely that Judas brought that many to the garden. That would very quickly overrun the place. But apparently, a full cohort was made available to him if he, had, would have, if he would have needed it. Did he not realize that the Lamb of God would just meekly submit and that there would be no need for a battle? Jesus was in full control. He knew what would happen. Judas, of course, expected some kind of deception, so he arranged to identify Jesus by kissing him. But Jesus both shocked Judas and the arresting officers by boldly presenting himself to them. He had nothing to fear and nothing to hide. He would willingly lay down his life for the sheep. Furthermore, by surrendering to the officers, Jesus helped to protect his own disciples, not just spiritually but physically as well. And why do you think the arresting soldiers drew back and fell to the ground when Jesus said, I am he? The Jews present would have been struck by his I am statement as an affirmation of deity. And we knew that made them mad quite often. The Romans, who were, of course were in the majority, would, have been, would be struck by his bearing. For it was obvious that he was in command. It was an emotionally charged situation. And we do not know what Judas had told them about Jesus to help prepare for this confrontation. The Jewish leaders had tried to have Jesus arrested before, but they never had success. So the band, they were prepared for conflict, and when they met with, were met with surrender and calm, they were overwhelmed. And perhaps it was just a manifestation of, of the divine power or an exhibition of the majesty of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Psalm 27 and 2 says, When the wicked, even mine enemies, 
and my foes came upon me to eat my flesh, they stumbled and fell. And that's what happened to those guys in the garden. Judas's kiss, which was given repeatedly to the Lord, was certainly one of the basest acts of treachery recorded anywhere in sacred or secular history. In that day, a kiss was a sign of affection and devotion. Members of, of family kissed each other in meeting and in parting. But we know Judas really was not a member of God's family. He was just pretending to be that. And disciples usually greet, greeted a rabbi by kissing him. A sign of devotion and obedience. Judas was not truly a disciple of Christ, though he belonged to the disciple band. In the garden, Judas stood with the enemy, not with Jesus or his friends. When people today pretend to know, know and love the Lord, they're committing the sin of Judas. It's, a bad enough, it's bad enough to betray Christ, but to do it with a kiss, a sign of affection, is one of the worst treacheries of all. It was born in the pit of hell. Another symbol in this lesson is the sword. That's the sword represents rebellion. All the disciples had courageously affirmed their devotion to Christ. And Peter decided to prove it, so he quickly drew out a small sword and started to fight. He certainly misunderstood what Jesus had said about swords earlier in the evening. In the book of Luke, Jesus does tell him to not worry about the sword and not to bother, but he didn't listen. He had warned them that from now on, the situation would change and the men would treat them as transgressors. He was not suggesting that they use material swords to fight spiritual battles, but they, but they were to get a new mindset and expect opposition and even danger. He had provided for them and protected them while he was with them on earth, but now he was returning to the Father. They would have to depend on the Holy Ghost and exercise wisdom. Peter apparently took, took his words literally and thought he was supposed to declare war. Peter's sword symbolizes rebellion against the will of God. He should have known that Jesus would be arrested and that he would willingly surrender to his enemies because Jesus made that clear numerous times. Peter made every mistake possible. He fought the wrong enemy, used the wrong weapon, had the wrong motive, and accomplished the wrong result. He was openly resisting the will of God and hindering the work that Jesus came to accomplish. While we can admire his, his courage and his sincerity and his can-do attitude, it was certainly an example of, of zeal without knowledge. And why did Peter fail so miserably? For one thing, he had argued with the Lord when Jesus warned him that he would deny his master that very night. Peter had slept when he should have been praying, and he talked when he should have been listening. He imitated the, the very enemies who came to arrest Jesus, for they too were armed with, armed with swords. Peter would discover that the sword of the Spirit is the weapon God's servants use in fighting their spiritual battles. He would use that sword at Pentecost and slay 3,000 souls. Jesus, he didn't need Peter's protection. He could have summoned legions of angels had he wanted to be delivered. Luke tells us that, that Jesus also healed Malchus's ear, which was certainly an act of grace on his part. It was gracious from Peter's point of view, 
For had he not healed Malchus, Peter might have been arrested and crucified himself. Peter was acting like one of the Jewish zealots, which were very common in that day. You could kind of compare them to terrorists that we've dealt with in, over the past 20, 30 years of our history. And not like the disciples of Jesus Christ. But it was also an act of grace towards Malchus. After all, he was only a servant. And why worry about what happens to a servant? He was also an enemy standing with the men who came to arrest Jesus. So he ought to suffer, so Peter would think. It is possible that Malchus had actually laid hold of Jesus. We don't know, but if he did, he laid his hands on the Holy One of God. And however, though, the Lord did not judge Malchus, though he was a sinner deserving God's wrath. Instead, he healed him. It was our Lord's last public miracle before the cross. Now, keep in mind that this miracle reveals his grace towards us as well. If Jesus had the power to stun an armed mob and heal a severed ear, he could save himself from arrest, trial, and death. But he willingly submitted. And he did it for all of us. It's a sad thing when well-meaning but ignorant Christians take up the sword to defend the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter hurt Malchus, something a believer shouldn't do. Peter hurt the testimony of, of Christ and gave the false impression that his disciples hate their enemies and try to destroy them when we know that Jesus taught them much differently than that. The cup is numbers, another symbol in this lesson. And that means submission. Peter had a sword in his hand, but our Lord had a cup in his hand. Peter was resisting God's will, but the Savior was accepting God's will. Earlier, Jesus had prayed, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but thou will. The cup represented the suffering. He would endure and the separation from the Father that, would, that he would experience on the cross. He prayed this prayer three times, evidence that his whole being was sensitive to the price he would pay for our salvation. His holy soul must have been stirred to the depths when he contemplated being made sin, because we know he was made sin on that cross. The drinking of a cup is often used in Scripture to illustrate experience, the experience of suffering and sorrow. When Babylon captured Jerusalem, the city had drunken from the dregs of the cup of trembling, as found in Isaiah 51 and 17. Jeremiah pictured God's wrath against nations as the pouring out of a cup. There is also a cup of consolation in Jeremiah and the overflowing cup of joy in Psalms 23 and 5. Jesus had compared his own sufferings to the drinking of a, of a cup and the experiencing of a baptism. When he instituted the supper, he compared the cup to his blood, shed for the remission of sins, of course. The image was familiar to one of his disciples, and it's not an unfamiliar image today. To drink the cup means to go through with a difficult experience and not my cup of tea that we try to avoid. The fact that some trophies are designed like cups suggests that winners have been through some demanding experiences and had to swallow a lot. 
Jesus was able to accept the cup because it was mixed by the Father and given to him from the Father's hand. He did not resist the Father's will because he came to do the Father's will and finish the work that the Father had given him to do. Psalm 40 and 8 says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And since the Father had mixed and measured the contents of the cup, Jesus knew he had nothing to fear. And this is a good lesson to us. We need to never fear the cups that, that are handed us. To begin with, our Savior has already drunk the cup before us, and we're only following in his steps. We need to never fear what is in the cup because the Father has prepared it for us in love. If we ask for bread, he will never give us a stone. And, and the cup prepare, he prepares will never contain anything that will harm us. We may suffer pain and heartbreak, but he will eventually transform that, into su that suffering into glory. Jesus deliberately gave himself to his enemies. They bound him, led him to the house of Annas, which was not too far away. Annas had served as high priest until he was disposed, deposed by the Romans. Now his son-in-law Caiaphas was the high priest. God had ordained that one man should serve as high priest for a lifetime. So it's easy to see that the Jewish religious establishment was in sad condition. It's generally believed that the high priest's family was in charge of the temple business. And the fact that Jesus twice cleansed the temple must have aroused their anger against him. The trial before Annas was more like an informal hearing. It was illegal and it was brutal. Imagine a guard being allowed to strike a prisoner. If you see a court case on, tel on television, or usually don't see the deputy going up and slapping the prisoner. Not until he's pronounced guilty, and then they slap the cuffs, cuffs on him and haul him away, but, but they sure don't slap him around during the trial. <coughs> Annas, of course, was looking for some kind of evidence on which to base an accusation that would lead to a verdict of capital punishment. What doctrine was Jesus teaching? Was it subversive? Jesus told him to ask the people who listened to him. Because he had said nothing in secret. He said everything in the open. In fact, Annas himself could have come and listened. What about our Lord's disciples? Were they organized to overthrow the government? Did not one of them use his sword in the garden? Jesus was careful to say nothing about his disciples. Think of it. While Peter was in the courtyard denying his Lord, Jesus was on trial protecting Peter. Jewish law demanded that witnesses be called before a prisoner was questioned. Annas defied this law. And eventually the council hired false witnesses. Jesus, he knew his rights, but he did not insist on them. He is an example to us when we suffer wrongfully. Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him three times, but that, that he would also be restored to fellowship and service. And we know both of that happened. Peter followed the crowd when he should have been fleeing. Had he gone his way, he would have never have denied the Lord. While we certainly admire his love and courage, we cannot agree with his actions. 
for he walked right into temptation. This is what Jesus warned him about in the garden. We do not know who the other disciple was who went with Peter into the courtyard of the home of the high priest. It was probably John, though it's difficult to understand how a fisherman could be acquainted with the high priest in his household. Was this other disciple possibly Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea? They would certainly have access to this home. As you watch Peter, you see him gradually moving into the place of temptation and sin, and his actions parallel, parallel the, des the description in Psalm 1 and 1. First, Peter walked in the counsel of the ungodly. When he followed Jesus, went into the high priest's courtyard. Peter should have followed the counsel of Jesus and gotten out of there in a hurry. Then Peter stood with the enemy by the fire, and before long he sat with the enemy. It was now too late, for within a short time, he would deny his Lord three times. First, a servant girl asked, art thou, art thou not one of this man's disciples? And the Greek text indicates that she expected a negative answer. And that is what she got. Peter denied Christ by denying that he belonged to the band of disciples. Peter remained by the fire, so it is no wonder when he was approached again that same night that it happened again. Another servant asked the same question, again expecting a negative reply. The pronoun that they use in John 18 and 25 suggests that others in the circle around the fire took up the question and one by one hurled it at Peter. The third question came from one of Malchus's relatives. The Greek construction indicates that he expected an affirmative answer. I saw you in the garden with Jesus, didn't I? Yes, I did. After all, this man had gotten a good look at Peter because he was probably standing with Malchus when Jesus was arrested. Some of the bystanders took up the discussion so that Peter may have been surrounded by challengers. At that point, Peter's resistance broke down complete, completely. In, even in the book of Matthew, it said he began to curse and swear. Now, this doesn't mean that Peter let loose just a, a volley of the worst profanity that you might hear from a sailor in the Navy or anything. But it could mean that he rather put himself under a curse in, in order to emphasize his statement that he was being truthful when he really wasn't. And it was at that point that the cock began to crow, just as Jesus had predicted. There were four watches, evening, 6 to 9, midnight, 9 to 12, and cock crowing 12 midnight to 3 a.m., and morning, 3 to 6. The crowing of the cock reminded Peter of the Lord's words, but thankfully, Peter went out and wept bitterly, and I think that's finally when he got it right and became the great, the great apostle that he was. Thank you. Praise God. Good job, man. Good job. Praise God. A lot of great information in that, isn't there? Praise God. A lot of great information. Brother Tim Williams has been putting those together. And uh, he has just been doing a tremendous, uh, a tremendous job. Praise God. And then I'm picking up on verse 28, John 18 and 28. Would you stand with me tonight? Praise God. Give you a chance to stand again. Amen. John chapter 18 and verse 28. Praise God. 
Then led Jesus, then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves, talking about the Sanhedrin, went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Jesus, in your name, you may be seated. Praise God. So here the Sanhedrin, as Brother Tim Williams did such a wonderful job again, uh, taught, uh, or I mean, uh, convicted the Lord, and them being under the Roman dictatorship uh, could not put a, a man to death, especially by crucifixion. And that was the will of the Lord. God has a way in our lives of setting things up to where they actually go in his will, in his way. He knows how to do that. He knows how to set the circumstances up so that his will will ultimately be done. Praise God. And it was the will of God that he would be crucified. And, uh, and so the time period in which we're living in sets it up perfectly for God to have brought a complete sacrifice for the man's sins. And so it is set up to the point to where uh, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin could not crucify Christ. So they had to bring Christ to Pilate to be crucified. They didn't have the power to put actually a person to death. They could have mobbed him to death. They could have stoned him. They could have almost murdered him, is what it would have been. But on the other hand, it would not have fulfilled Scripture. And this is what Jesus wanted, or this is what God wanted to do. God wanted to fulfill Scripture. And so, praise God, the Bible says that they brought uh, Jesus to Pilate and to the judgment hall. Jesus had been condemned by the Sanhedrin. And uh, he was pronounced guilty of death, but they, once again, they didn't have the power to put him to death. And so they took him to the Roman government, which had the ability to uh, approve of a crucifixion. So the crucifixion of Jesus uh, was set up in this case to where it was a joint effort. Jesus didn't die for the Jew. Um, you have people that say, well, the Jews crucified Christ. Well, if the Jews crucified Christ, then the Jews are the only one that can be saved. Praise God, because Christ died for the world. It was a joint effort here. And, and obviously, I mean, even some men, pastors, have put that on their billboards on the outside of their churches, which is just completely stupid. But um, when you look at this and you see this, amen, and you understand that uh, it was a joint effort, for Jesus to be crucified. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But what really, really, really sticks out to me in this passage is that although this passage was 2,000 years ago, there are a lot of similarities in this passage that we have today. And there are lessons that can be learned. When you read the Bible, understand that there are lessons that can be learned, things that you can glean from the Word of God and understand today. You see, it is amazing to me that they considered the touch of a Gentile 
to be defilement. They wasn't going to go into judgment hall because they wasn't going to go into a Gentile's uh, place. They wasn't going to go in and touch a Gentile. Uh, the doorknob that a Gentile touched, they're not going to touch because they did not want to be polluted by the Gentiles. And so they was not going to do that. They guarded themselves against what they commit, what they uh, considered a ceremonial pollution, while they wholly uh, were, was not concerned, praise God, about putting a, 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 a just man to death. We can't go in and we can't pollute ourselves with a Gentile. But we can put a just man to death. Praise God. Think about that. Amen. Think about how misconstrued they could be. We're not going to touch the Gentile's property. We're not going to go into the Gentile because we want to be able to have the Passover. We want to be able to do the Passover. But we know this man is innocent, and we're going to lie about him. We're going to push to have him crucified, but we're not going to touch a Gentile and be condemned with that. Think about that. It's amazing to me how, talk about, you know, straining gnats and swallowing camels. It's amazing to me, you take someone like David as a good example. Someone like David and Bathsheba. David says, I don't want to be known as being an adulteress. So what am I going to do about this? I, I'm going to kill him. And so adultery is a bad thing. It's like, you know, there are people today, and this is an adult class, but there are people today, amen, who have said, I can't get in a divorce so I, because we're a Christian. It wouldn't look good to the church. It wouldn't be accepted from my individuals. So what I'll do is I'll go out and I will hire somebody quietly to kill my mate. It's, and, and you think, oh, that's way out there. No, it isn't. It happens all the time. People, praise God. So, you know, we have to ask ourselves the question. You know, is there things in my life that I am so not going to touch because I want to be so right with the Lord, but there are other things that are hidden that I could get away with and I can do them. You see, the Sanhedrin was so wrapped up, and I'll tell you where I think the, 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 the crook of the matter is. I think the crook of the matter is two things. First of all, the Sanhedrin was more interested in what people thought than what God thought. Number one. And number two, the Sanhedrin was more, felt more important to have their religion than to have God's religion. And we've got to be careful that we don't get into that. 
You know, even as the pastor, a minister that I'm preaching, I've got to remember this is not my church. This is God's church. Praise God. And if God wants to have a snowstorm on Wednesday night and we have to cancel church, it's his church. And sometimes I think that God does things in our lives, praise God, that when we look at it, we think, you're not doing much to further your gospel, but he's like, it's my gospel. And I'm going to teach you that I'm the one in control here. You know, there are people that think when they pray, praise God, I know, let me say this first, I know prayer changes things. But there are people that think when they pray that God, amen, is going to uh, 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 come down and do things due to their prayer. I think God's going to do things anyways. We got to pray. But I think the majority of our prayer, once again, is not us telling God what to do. It's It's us asking God what we should do. God, what is it that I should do? You know, it's not, God, you got to make Tim Williams love Jesus more. It's, God, you got to make me love Tim Williams more. And Jesus more. Praise God. Pray for the lost. That's the thing. But your biggest prayer is, Lord, what can I say to help the lost? Praise God. But we've got to understand, this is God's church. And God is the one that's in control. Amen. And our heart's desire, amen, cannot get to the point to where we think we've been here so long and we've been so consistent and everything else that we bought into this. No, we really haven't. You know, the thing of it is, in 1987, God called me here to pastor. I will pastor. I don't know when that's going to be done, but when it's done, it's done, praise God, and someone else will come along, and it's going to still be God's church. Praise the Lord. But I have to be careful, amen, that I don't, praise the Lord, make it become my church, and then if it's my church, it's my control. It's my religion, it's my control. And that's what happened to the Sanhedrin. They had control. It's our temple, and God, you're not going to have, you know, they never looked at Jesus as being God in flesh. Praise the Lord. They could not comprehend that. And they're like, but then on top of that, here's the bottom line. You ready for this? This is good. I'm sorry. I know I'm the one that's saying it, but it's still good, okay? Okay? You ready for this? Always look for the honesty and the Bible in it. Always look for the Bible in it. The Sanhedrin got away from the things of God because they got away from God and they got away from the biblical part of it. They had a law that you could not do uh, uh, what was called a Sabbath day's journey. 
And so they took that Sabbath day's journey, and what it was was the, the way that a Sabbath day's journey was determined is, is the farthest tent from the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Whatever it took for the farthest tent in the tabernacle to travel to the tabernacle, that was what was known as the, the uh, Sabbath day's journey. That's how they determined what that was. And so they said, well, what if I need a piece of clothing for church that day? Well, you can go just as far as you need for a piece of clothing. So what did the Jews do? They decided that uh, what they would do was hire a Gentile that would carry their clothes and drop one every once in a while so they could go farther than a Sabbath day's journey. Now, you say, oh, that's stupid. But we do things like that today to get around the things of God. We look at this and we say, praise God, you know, Amen. He, you know, it, 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 people today that live for God, if we don't watch, we're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. And if people think bad about it, we don't want that out. But if God thinks bad about it, well, nobody will know about that. And so, amen, these Sanhedrin are like, Praise God. And, and, and another thing was, it was doing what they wanted. You know, I forget who it was. We, we had a thing here at the church, and I was playing the bass, and I was supposed to get up here. I needed to practice with the group before I really got up and played, and someone just simply said to me, well, you're the pastor. Get up there and play. I said, no. Praise God. Everybody needs to abide by the laws. Everybody needs to. Praise God. Amen. But you see, the Gentiles, amen, thought, we're not going to touch the Jewish stuff. I'm sorry, the Jews said, we're not going to touch the Gentile things because we don't want to be defiled by the Gentiles. But, on the other hand, they were willing to have the Savior crucified. And the reason that their, their distortion, the reason they really couldn't see was because they wasn't working for the betterment of God, they were working for the betterment of themselves. And we have to be careful that we're not working for the betterment. You know, we get in the church and we have our functions and we do our things and we have things that we do and we've got positions in the church and we've got places in the church and we've got this in the church and that in the church. And we've got to understand, praise the Lord, that even though we have those positions and even though we have those places... Praise God. It's not for the betterment of me. It's for the betterment of God. What is better than, you know, I was listening to a book, just a a secular book. And it says that, praise the Lord, you can have a a, a B-type person. And what I mean by B, he can have a certain quality, a B quality, not an A quality, a B quality. And he can hire just C, D, E, and F type people underneath him because, amen, he does not want them to outdo him. And generally, that kind of organization will go under. But if you have a B type person and he hires A type people, 
because they're better fit to do that job, then that type of organization in the organizational world will grow. Well, same thing in the church. Praise the Lord. It's the same thing with the things of God. I'm telling you, when we get the attitude that it doesn't matter, amen, who does what, as long as God is blessing, let's do it. But the Sanhedrin was like, no, I cannot have Jesus, amen, approved here. And they went after him to have him crucified. You see, on the other flip side of that coin, Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to look good, so they brought their money to the church, and they turned it into the church, and they said, yeah, this is what we sold the property for. Amen. Not telling them that they kept some money back. Oh, if they would have known they would have been caught, they wouldn't have done it. Because, you see, once again, their concern was what the people thought about them. That's the reason they did it. They looked over, and they saw all these people getting this attention for bringing this money. And there's like, I, we want that attention. How much is it going to cost us? It's going to cost us selling that piece of land and bringing it to the church. Oh, do you think we can get a little cheaper? Yeah, let's keep, let's keep some back to lay some carpet in the living room. Okay. You see? Praise God. Verse 29 says, Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? And they answered and said unto him, If he were not a male factor, in other words, if he was not uh, fit to be crucified, we would not have delivered it unto you. You know, generally, when the Sanhedrin tried somebody and brought them to Pilate or brought them to the Roman dictatorship, they just put them in a number and took them out and had them crucified. Praise God. But Pilate... Amen, uh, was wondering about them because Pilate knew and he did not trust the Sanhedrin. He did not trust uh, um, the Sanhedrin. He did not trust, praise God, uh, any of the men. Amen, Caiaphas. He didn't trust any of them, praise God. He knew, he knew. And when they brought Jesus and said, he is come to overthrow the Roman dictatorship. Pilate knew right away that wasn't true. Because Pilate knew that's what the Jews wanted to do. They wanted to overthrow the Roman dictatorship. And now they're delivering unto Pilate, the one that's going to overthrow him. Technically, Amen. The reason that Jesus stood there was because he wasn't going to overthrow the Roman dictatorship. My kingdom is not of this world. And so they were angry with him. One of the good lessons we can learn out of this, and that is when Jesus is not who you think he ought to be or what you want him to be, it can make you angry. When Jesus doesn't do what you think he ought to do, it can make you angry when Jesus doesn't work in the way you think he ought to work. When Jesus doesn't work through the person you think he ought to work, work through, it can make you angry. Praise God. And so they were angry because they did not, 
Jesus was not going to be their deliverer. And they're delivering him to Pilate saying, he is wanting to be, uh, you know, king over us. And here he is. And Pilate's shaking his head and saying, mm-mm, this can't be true. You know, it's amazing how there is the surface of what people say and the surface of what people do. But down deep in your heart and your mind and your soul, you know that ain't the way it is. You know, uh-uh, that's not what's happening here. No, Pilate knew that. Praise God. Verse 31 said, Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law, you know, which I'm not going to crucify him. And the Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put a man to death, that the saying might be fulfilled, which was he spake signifying what death he should die. You see, God's got a way of getting his will done. It was number one, it was the will of God that not only a Jew would crucify Christ, but a Gentile would. Number two, it was the will of God that he would go upon a cross and hang and die. And Jesus and God was going to make sure it got done. So God has a way of sticking his finger into a situation and getting it done his way. And just remember that in your own life. You can say to yourself, if God wants me to have that, I'll get it. If God don't want me to have it, I shouldn't want it. If God wants me to be, if God wants that to happen, it's going to happen. And if God doesn't, praise God. You see, the Jews wanted to have Jesus convicted for treason against the Roman government. And we understand different than that. Verse 33, then Pilate entered into the kingdom hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? He asked him. And he answered, Sayest thou sayest this of thyself, or did others tell thee of, of me? You see, the thing of it is, Amen. Praise God. The, the, the Sanhedrin brought Jesus to be crucified. If Pilate would have taken him out and crucified him, then it would have been on the blood of the Jews. But at this point, Jesus is saying, okay, I'm not asking you to do what they want to do or what they're thinking to do. Now the responsibility is in your hands. That's what made Pilate furious. Pilate tried to wash himself of this situation. And Jesus said, no, it's in your hands. That's what, is that what they're saying? In other words, Pilate was saying, praise God, they're saying this and this and this and this. And Jesus is saying to him, he's saying, that's what they're saying, but what are you saying? You have the power to let me go, and you have a power to crucify me. Now, Jesus did not want him to crucify him, and eventually he told him, he said, you know, the greater sin is them. But on the other hand, it had to be Pilate's responsibility along with the Jews' responsibility because Jesus died for the world. And so Pilate was, Jesus was saying unto him, This is what they've said unto you, but what do you think? In other words, the control is in your hands. It's amazing to me how God works. Pilate, okay, verse 35. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? 
Thine own nation and thy chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, praise God, that I should not be delivered unto the Jew, uh, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is from hence, you see. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am, which is yes. It means yes. And to this end was I born, and for this cause did I come into the world, that I should bear witness of the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? You know, this is amazing to me. You could do a whole message on this. Praise God. Truth, 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 Pilate says. Truth? What is truth? You see, this question is something that has puzzled the world all down through the period of time. What is truth? Praise God. It's a great subject. The schools of the Greeks tried to say what truth was. Different sects of philosophies had held different opinions of what truth is. Here's truth. There's truth. The, the, the Sanhedrin saying, it's truth that you crucify him. Praise God. And there's some, probably Mary, Magdalene, or Mary the mother of Jesus, is like, let him go. Pilate's wife said, I had a dream of this man. Don't, don't, be, don't get yourself in that situation. Praise God. All this is coming in. What is truth? What is truth? What is truth? What is truth? When you live in a world without a Bible, you ask that question, what is truth? Praise God. What is truth? You know, I've used this example before, and I'm going to use it again real fast. I know where this pulpit is. So since I know where this pulpit is, I know where my home is. There are some fixed objects in my life that help me navigate life. You know where your home is, so you know how to go to the store. You know where your bedroom is, so you know how to get downstairs or upstairs or whatever. You understand the point that I'm making? And so when you have fixed things in life, praise God, you know how to navigate life. When you don't know what truth is, you can't navigate life. When there's nothing that's really fixed or secure in your life. I counseled a man one time. He was so messed up. And I finally asked him, I said, you know, it's a good thing that God has everything in control. And he simply looked at me and said, I don't think God has everything in control. I think he's winging it. And I said to him, I said, oh, you don't think God's got everything in control? No. I said, well, then I know where the basis of your being messed up is. Praise God. Pilate said truth. What is truth? Praise God. And aren't you glad that you've got a Bible that tells you what truth is? Praise God. You know, Pilate said that, and I'm going to close with this. Pilate said that, and he said that, and this is a very good point. He said that and not want to know the answer. If he would have said it and wanted to know the answer, Jesus would have said, let me tell you what truth is. You know, we're living in a world today where you have people that they'll ask questions, but they really don't want the answer. 
They'll ask the question, what's this world going to, how's this world going to end up? And you start to tell them how the world's going to end up. They don't want to hear it. Pilate said, what is truth? And I'm going to tell you something. There was no one better standing before him that could tell him what truth is. But Pilate didn't want to know. You know, when it comes to the Bible, this is good. When it comes to the Bible, praise God, the truth is in there. The problem is, do you really want to know? Because if you don't want to know, then God's going to be silent with you. But the moment you say, God, I want to know, then he will talk to you. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And Jesus stood there quietly because he said, you really don't want to know. But if you do, then I'll tell you. Praise God. Let's all stand. Lord, we love you.